You're listening to Kevin Stock Radio. All right, so for the listeners, I got Colin here with me, founder of Wild Foods, and I, I think we're just going to, let's just dive into it because totally. I've, I've been on your podcast a couple of times, but yep. for context, for the listeners, I was familiar with Wild Foods before I knew you. Uh, That's funny. And it was a brand, so a brand that like I liked and like one of the few that, few that I'd be like, all right, I'd stand behind this brand. <laughs> and so when you and your team reached out, I was like, hell yeah, like I'll definitely jump That's on cool. podcast. I like hearing that. Yeah. Uh, and so we had a couple chats and then I started, you know, following you, I subscribed to your newsletter, reading your mm-hmm. content. And I just loved all the stuff you're putting out there. And I was like, <laughs> you know, I like, and I said in one of my newsletters, like, all right, I was on Colin's podcast and, you know, we talked about a lot of good nutritional stuff, but some of your content, the, the reason I think I gravitate towards it so much is like, I explained it is like, you're a ruthlessly independent thinker. And I like people like that, even if we don't see eye to eye on everything, for sure. it's like people that just like will think for themselves. And I think it's kind of like a rare thing. So I, it's a topic I kind of want to dive into at the end, but if you don't mind telling me and, you know, listeners, like we got connected obviously through carnivore somehow, what was like your path towards carnivore? And are you still eating that way? How, what's your diet like these days? So can you kind of walk us through that journey? Yeah. I mean, this goes like way back. It was, it was, I, I would, I would take it all the way back to high school and, and school where I didn't fit in with school. Like it just, teachers didn't like me. I was that typical problem. Like I, I'd rather talk to my friends and listen, or I would sleep. And yeah. so school never fit with me. And then, you know, yeah, school, you're like, okay, what do I do now? Well, I guess community college, cause I didn't have good grades. So that's all I can, that's all it's open to me. So let me see what that looks like. Yeah. And so I was motivated going to community college and then that quickly waned. And then I'm like, okay, again, modern education doesn't fit for me. So I've always had the, had this kind of uh, incongruence to just status quo, what everyone else is doing. You know, I didn't, I never really liked our authority, kind of the typical rebel type of scenario. Like yep. obviously as a founder entrepreneur, I was very lucky to find an outlet for that, that I could turn into an actual life. Right. And this was before like pre-internet where now you can like, it's celebrated to be an entrepreneur and be, be a, your own thinker and whatever. Right. And so, um, I've definitely gone through a lot of struggles through that, even with just relationships and people and like, having to modulate what I say, what I don't say, like, like it's easy to look at me now and be like, Oh wow. You know, he, he can like think independently and he's this and he's that. And like, I want to do that too, but I kind of don't necessarily recommend it for most people. Like, it's not an easy thing. It's one of those things that's like, if you want to be an Olympic gold medalist, like that's awesome. Everybody wants to be, but most people don't want to commit maybe years to achieving that. Right. So we always have to be careful of the kind of recency bias and like what we see and how we kind of like forget literally like a 20 year path. Yeah. Right. And, and so, yeah. And the survivorship bias too, because a lot of people, that's see, true. A lot like, of people don't entrepreneurship's exactly. all sexy and things like yep. that, but you're seeing, you know, there's a lot of people and from someone that knows from failure myself, like there's a lot of struggles. Like what you're saying is like, it's definitely not for everyone, at least from the entrepreneur thing, from the yep. independence thinking thing. I think people do need to think more independently about things like if you don't think independently about health you're probably fat and sick and unhealthy right now yes <laughs> and, you know same thing and maybe we'll touch on this towards the end of the podcast but finances things like that as well where if you just fought you know if you're average these days you're probably you know if you're following traditional advice and you're average you're overweight you're sick you're probably pretty broke living paycheck to paycheck 
Uh, so we'll having to talk do- about all that for hours. <laughs> so I do want to answer your question though, because you asked about Carlos. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. yeah let's long story short, right. The long story short was got into CrossFit. I literally right. remember reading a men's health article because at the time I was like into bodybuilding. So I'm doing all the standard, like this is what you do in fitness. Yeah. Men's health article had a little side section. I remember reading it inside of an LA fitness. Like I was flipping through the pages. Like it's crazy how you remember these pitiful moments in your life. And I saw this mention of a 300 workout, right? Which yeah. you may have obviously the movie the 300, movie. Yeah. Jim Jones. And then there was like a loose connection to CrossFit where at like the bar- bottom of the article, they kind of mentioned like, oh, CrossFit too is kind of functional training or whatever. And so I clicked on that link within like, Two weeks, I booked a certification for CrossFit. And I'm like, this, this is just speaking to me, right? Yeah. Did that for about a year. I remember walking into that gym and thinking to myself, like, it's like a, literally a warehouse, right? Because CrossFit yeah. boxes are usually warehouses. They and are. I was like, I was so confused because I'm like, do they know something I don't? Like, why can't I do this? I could literally source bars and mats and I could train people. Like, and, and I was just, it was one of those things, like, it was almost a, a waking up moment, like, where it was an early sign that I was going to kind of question a lot of the ideas that I was, I grew up with where I always used to think that businesses were all owned by like big corporations. Like right. I remember being like 20 something where people were like, yeah, you can own a small business. Like that, that, that car wash probably owned by a single person. And it, it like blew my mind because you yeah. go through all school back when like you and I probably went to school. Nobody talked about entrepreneurship. No, it didn't, like, no, not I mean, all. not once in my entire career, middle school, high school, and even into uh, community college for a year. I don't think one person said something about be an entrepreneur or starting a business or anything. Nobody talked about it. I think school is actually geared for the exact opposite. Work for the, how, how to work yep. for the entrepreneur, exactly. you know, for the business, not become one or anything like that. Well, this is also a time we're dating ourselves a little bit because obviously entrepreneurship and a lot of colleges have programs. And, it up. I mean, there's even yeah. like high schools that are opening up and having like, you know, extracurricular courses that are like whatever. So like, it's definitely a different world. But back then I'm telling you, like, it's amazing how siloed and com- Pressed and maybe almost guarded information was whether on purpose or an accident. Yep. And it's one of those things like that the internet has done, it has opened up a lot of doors for a lot of people and like different personalities to kind of like embrace who they are. And so that's kind of also the point of like, I've just been able to be very lucky to like be early into computers, be early as a gamer, be, and then like lead into these different rabbit holes and self-study and education because of the internet. Like, I really think the internet and computers is like, almost like saving my life in a way, you know, like, I don't know what I would have, would have happened. Right. So, uh, paleo after CrossFit, okay. paleo after CrossFit. And then, and then paleo was like, nobody's really talking about this. And paleo itself was kind of a antithesis to like standard American diet. So like, it was like kind of the first red pill awakening. We're like, wait a second, why are doctors and pharma and all these things recommending this when paleo recommends this? And I just did it. And I finally lost the 10 pounds. I finally feel amazing. And then I made that connection, the aha moment to when I eat quality food, I feel amazing. I look amazing. I perform amazing. And I was in CrossFit at the time. So like your, your nutrition was performance. And I was training every day, a wad a day, seven days a week. And I could not get that last 10 pounds. And I'm like, am I not training enough? Like what what the hell is going on here? Right. I'm sleeping nine hours a night. Like what is going on? And I finally made that connection. And since then it's, it's pretty much directed everything I've done. You know, wild foods are sourcing meth, uh, method, methodology, how I think about food, nutrition, everything, real food. And so I already kind of took the red pill early. And then carnivore was the thing that was like slowly introduced to me through some people like Paul Saldino was a mutual friend and he was on the podcast. And then my buddy, Logan Sneed, cancer survivor, he was eating a very real food, but animal-based diet. And he kind of did some videos on carnivore. And I was always like, oh, that's interesting. I could, I could see that. But then it was like, it's, it became more of a thing in my consciousness. And I was like following Sean Baker at the time. 
And I was like looking into it more and I'm like, well, wait a second, this is interesting. And I was like, you know, I, I've gained a few pounds living in Austin and enjoying my eating out time and having a son. Maybe I could lean up. Let's just see what happens. And so I did a carnivore and I started talking about it on YouTube and I did strict for like probably 90 days. And then I slowly like figured out like, what does a carnivore look like for me? And for me, it's at this point to where I'm at now, it's basically, uh, if I need a reset, I go strict carnivore. Perfect. Um, the rest of the time, because life travel and certain foods I enjoy, I'm going to probably eat about 80% carnivore. And then I, so I call it kind of like an 80% omnivore diet or 80% animals omnivore version or whatever. And I actually think for like most people, this is a really big thing. I'm going to be talking about more on my channel because I think a lot of people, if they took carnivore and they used it as a strategy and then pulled it back a little bit and they found kind of some kind of 80, 20, 70, 30, 90, 10, whatever that is, I think it would simplify so much and it would also remove the dogma that we see in the diet wars a lot, right? Which I don't think is good for anybody. No, and that's what we're on the same page. And that's what I've actually been working on something this entire year that basically is what you just said in a nutshell. Uh, Hopefully it'll be ready towards the end of this year, but it's- it's An article? No, it's actually like a full-blown program that I'm- Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so, uh, but yeah, it's basically exactly what you just said. Because the reality is, even though if someone is going to eat strictly meat and that is their 100% best diet, which is not the case for everyone, I don't believe. But even if that was the case, you know, most people aren't going to do that for a number of different reasons. Yep. And a lot like, of very valid reasons too. Yeah. Like, there's nothing wrong with enjoying life and food and travel and whatever. Like, if, I go, if I go to the be- if I go to a chef's table restaurant because I'm traveling in another country and I'm like, I booked this thing eight months in advance. Am I going to be like, just give me the meat. I'm sorry. I can't have anything else. Like you were missing out on almost most of the experience. And a lot of yep. restaurants, you wouldn't even be able to eat there doing that. Right. Yep. So, and I remember I started, so the, the website meat.health in 2017 and I was doing carnivore at the time, but I started the website not to like promote carnivore. Cause like that was that link, that term was just coming into like the vernacular, I think, yep, yep. but I was just trying to promote, like, look, I've been eating just meat. I'm not saying everyone should eat, but, but it's like, I was never eating red meat before. And it like, well, and the research and all that it led yep. to just pr- promoting like what I was calling a meat-based diet, which, you know, uh, which is really what I think we're talking about here. Right. You know, right. Yep. More of like the species appropriate food is makes the core of your diet and, yep. you know, some other fillers around that. So you, you led into something that I, I had a question about. So you were doing CrossFit at the boxes. You saw that, you know, Oh man, I could, like yep. this business is, you know, kind monkey of see monkey do hundred yeah. percent. I'm like, they're not special. I could do this. Yep. So is that how that's, when did you give birth to wild foods and how did, how did that look? Yeah. So that was, uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Um, I actually met red Rob Wolf there soon after he, when he was still working with CrossFit and doing certifications yeah. and that was yeah, a really yeah. cool experience. And so like, I got, I, I got heavily into nutrition at the time and I'm like, man, I want to do something with nutrition. And so through the gym, I could obviously coach clients and whatever, but I actually saw a little bit of a disconnect. So like you have your hardcore CrossFit athletes, a lot of them do like paleo or zone or, or keto or whatever. And they kind of experiment with things, but most of them care more about performance than health. Yeah. And other people just want to lose weight and they don't really care about the, the, the theory behind it or an ancestral mindset or whatever. And, and so it was kind of like a, a little bit of a disenchantment with like, I thought that the people in the gym that are there to lose weight, right? I thought it was, it would be perfect to bring them diet as well. But we saw a huge disparity of people that were even interested in diet at all, other than like saying, okay, well, give me a few tips. I want to like meal prep and I'll do chicken and rice or whatever. And it's just like, across the gym attracts people that want to kind of be fit and lean that are either younger and they want to look that way. And again, they can kind of almost eat whatever they want. And then there's people that are like 20 pounds overweight and they want to do like hardcore exercise, but they don't necessarily want to change a whole lot in their, 
in their actual life, right? It's very rare that you can build like a box in a certain area that is like a, a nutrition focused kind of like fitness program. And I really think the fitness industry needs that more actually, because I see too much of reliance on drugs and, and really bad cutting habits and just the insanity that you see in like traditional global gym type stuff is bad, but you even see it in CrossFit, you see it in anything, strongman, CrossFit, powerlifting, like it's fitness first, health last or health, not at all. In a lot of cases, and a lot of bodybuilders don't care about their health at all. Right. Yeah. But, a lot of times. And it's something I, I think we talked about uh, in one of our talks, but it's like something I felt prey to because I was more kind of in the bodybuilding, not like I wanted to be a bodybuilder, but like, that's what I've kind of cared about physique. Yep. And I thought like, I'm like, look, if you're building muscle and you're lean, like health is a natural, you know, consequence, right. which a lot of times if people improve their body composition, they're going to get healthier, but it's not a foregone conclusion whatsoever. Yep. You can get pretty, uh, like good, you know, decent physique and, you know, you like a health disaster still. Yep. So, so what was like your first product that you came out with, with, uh, wild foods and like, yeah, how, so that, like, so how, that, how'd you go to market with that? Right. So that led to, it was. CrossFit paleo, start doing the gym, trying to get people interested in nutrition, not, you know, not really, not, not really taking off, which is probably good it didn't because I might've been, do, been doing something else. I finally made the decision that I need to move out of Florida and I need to sell my businesses. So I owned a juice bar at the time. That was my first business. And then I had the CrossFit gym about a year later and I, and I did that it's still there to this day. It's like 11 years old now. I had the, I eventually exited that like about six, five or six years into the business. And so um, we rode we rode the CrossFit boom. We, we got through a recession. You know, we actually did really well during the recession, and everything because CrossFit was like just taken off at the time. And we made a good amount of money for a few years. And then I just kind of like, I was like, this is, isn't a big enough impact. And I'm not really doing the things I want to do. It was just like a, 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 like a daily focus on just like working out. Right. Yeah. And I think fitness is, I love fitness. I work out probably every day. I try to at least get moving. And I think it's integral for human health. But this is like hardcore fitness. This is like doing why lifting a lot of weight and whatever. And I don't necessarily have anything against that. I think it can be sustainable for certain people, but only if you're adding diet to it. So it, it just kept coming back to like food quality lifestyle and all those things. And I decided to move and a few of my friends that were actually at the box, I met through the box. They had been working for paleo effects. So this is like, it's crazy how these things kind of like connect and you like, yeah. it's crazy how your life can one, one person making a comment about Austin being an amazing city. And then I basically packed up my car, exited my businesses, sold it to my partner. And I drove all I could fit in my SUV to Austin, Texas. I got an Airbnb. I remember the exact apartment on, you know, on, on the West side of the city. And I stayed there for like five days. And then I just was like, let's find an apartment. And I, I got an apartment on rainy street. And it was like a one bedroom for like an astronomical amount of money a month. But I was like, <laughs> I want the experience or whatever. Right. And so I signed a year lease and I moved there. And, and at the, like the drive there, like the 20 hour drive, I had kind of already had the idea of wild foods percolating. It was, you know, like maybe I'll do like an MCT oil and a really good grass away protein, you know, because I was using those products at the time. And I was yep. like, well, I don't really know how they're made. I don't know where they're sourced from. Supplements are notoriously bad with with offering any information. Right. Like, yep. and so even to this day, and I was like, but, but if I can connect with the, the, the farm, the manufacturer, and I can know everything about it, then I can at least use it for myself and know that like have the peace of mind that I'm, I'm as close to that real food end of the spectrum. Yep. Cause for me, the paleo realization was when I eat real food, when I buy scratch ingredients, like close to nature as possible, and I prep them at home, my health, my results, everything is better. Yep. And so I was like, that's something like, that's the first principle for me real. Mm -hmm. And I call it capital R capital F. Right. So 
that was the kind of the sourcing methodology that kind of that kind of happened. And I found a really good grass-fed whey protein supplier. Uh, they the cows are grass-fed in Australia year-round, and it's made in this uh, in the states. And there's a cold process technique where they 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 pasteurize it minimum amount they have to by law, but then they immediately air cool it, and so you get a lot of the non-denatured buzzwords and the immune goblins and things, a lot of things I don't even really understand, to be honest, but I know that it's good for uh, immune system and whatever. And it smells a little bit like milk yep. and it tastes a little bit like milk. Yep. Whereas every other protein on the market is like dead powder. Yep. And so I was like, okay, well, there's a cue, right? It's like closer to food end of the spectrum. Yep. And so to this day, you know, that's one of our, our best-selling products, one of the original products. And I would like bring big bags of it home. I remember Rainy Street, one bedroom apartment, you know, you know, those buildings where you have to like do a key card to get into the level. Yep. Like, and there would be eight bags of whey protein outside my door. Like, like the, the big bakery bags are like, I'd have to pick right. them up like this and then move them over. And people are like, what is this guy doing? Is he a drug dealer or something? And so, and then I started packing them into small bags and selling on Amazon. Yeah. And then, so Amazon FBA was kind of a thing at the time. I mean, still is, but it was like wild west of Amazon. It was like a good time to get into it. And so I sold like $500 that first month. And then I'm like, wait a second. You know, I've always had the entrepreneurial, you know, spirit. Um, I did two small businesses, whatever. And I was like, well, this is interesting. And so I did, and I just kept going with it, man. That first year I went from January to $500 a month to the end of the year, we ended up at $500,000 in sales. What year is this? This is 2015. 2015. And you know what I find really interesting, which I think is like a core, like business lesson is it seems like all, all the businesses you started, first of all, they, they were at least had some degree of success, including your early ones is you are actually kind of like the first customer. Like you are into CrossFit. Always, every time. Yep. You are into those supplements. That's why I, why I want to know what your first product was because I figured like it was something that you'd already wanted. Because like, yep. to me, that's very like a smart place to start. Like, look, I want this product. This is how I want it made. And there's a good chance that there's other people like you. And so like, that's always a good starting point. So how did you... So that first year, $500, <laughs> you get bags of protein at your place. Mm-hmm. You're basically doing fulfillment yourself. Oh, everything. I shipped every single thing. I had packages outside. I, I even had like UPS <laughs> pickups where he would come to my door inside the apartment, take a cart of like yeah. 15 packages. I mean, it was to the point where, in fact, it's so funny because if I think about it now, it's almost embarrassing. But at the time, dude, I didn't give a you know, curse on the podcast. Or, yeah, I didn't, give, I didn't give a shit, man. I was like, I was like on a mission, dude. Get these products, these customers. And I would have 20 boxes stacked up that the front desk would have to like hold there. And like, it was just like this big thing. They probably thought they were actually pretty nice. I give them credit. Cause like, you know how sometimes in certain complexes, they can kind of be strict about things. They were super cool about it. And so, but it was like, it was like a lot of coming and going, a lot of deliveries and sending out. And like, you know, it was, uh, it was insane actually. But it's like, when you have a mission, you just you get it done. And I think like what you just said is actually a critical part of a successful entrepreneur is you have to be willing to do that stage. Yep. A lot of times people want to skip right to fancy and be like, but there's that, that entire building stage, which you look back on and might maybe embarrassed, but most entrepreneurs are pretty proud. That it's like, look, I, I basically put this business on my back and carried it to where it is. Uh, I think that's like a necessary ingredient. Uh, yeah, I can actually offer some comments on that. Um, yeah. So this is obviously a little bit more on the business side of it, but Okay. Every business, every idea, anything you do, right? There's a book that everyone should read. It's The Lean Startup. It's this idea of you get to the first dollar as fast as possible and as cheap as possible, right? So yeah. for me, how this manifested was I used my apartment as my warehouse, my fulfillment, my, my, my packing, everything, right? For the first probably year and a half, okay? Yep. And then I finally 
hired my first employee, but I didn't hire my first employee and then also get a warehouse. I actually had her work in my apartment. I mean, I had the point where I was sleeping till noon because I was always a night owl. She would show up at 8 a.m. She'd have four hours of work in while I was still sleeping. Like this is stuff you just, it's not, it's crazy actually when you actually think about it. Like, and 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 we're talking about, I was doing $50,000 a month in sales and I had one employee in my apartment, right? I could have afforded to have a warehouse and like have all these things, but it would have taken dollars away from growth, right? And, and bootstrapping back into the business. Yep. And so I, I mean, dude, people need to be as scrappy, as creative, and really almost like as skirting what's, uh, I don't want to say this, but legal at times, right? Like you could say that certain things were not like up to certain standard or whatever, but like if it meant I had to get a co-packer, food certifications, I mean, we're talking about Impossible. the difference between between even existing and not existing. Exactly. You know, that's why you always hear about these stories where this is how it was done then or whatever. It's because there are a lot of regulations in America. There are a lot of things that are expensive in infrastructure. And as much as we are capitalistic, you know, mostly capitalistic, mostly free, you know, uh, culture for like, we're not a truly free market. And there are a lot of things, regulatory things that get in the way. And it's sad because the person that it hurts the most is actually the consumer because it hurts small businesses that come in and compete against yep. big monopolies and right. that bring prices down. And at the end of the day, it's actually the consumer that hurts yep. more, right? Because like the market will always tell you, like if you're doing crazy dangerous things and I'm like packing way and like I'm not controlling for variables and like trying to do it very like the best I can. Like if I do very nefarious things or have other things in my products, like I will have negative Amazon reviews immediately. Exactly. You know, so like you have those mechanisms in place, those feedback loops so that like, I understand why there are regulate, regulation type stuff. Like, and as you evolve as a company, you meet those. Yep. But, you know, it does stifle innovation. It really does. It does. And, you know, I've, I've learned this the hard way, especially, I mean, it comes with all kinds of business, but with like intellectual property, because I have some patents. Yep. And man, it gets prohibitively expensive incredibly fast. And yep. then if a big company thinks that, oh, okay, we're just going to, sm- you know, squash this company, all you got to do is litigate with them until the company basically folds. Whether they win or not, they can just litigate you to death. Exactly. And so like, there are things like that, which are, I would say, anti-capitalistic, you know, that-, that The entire legal in- system is anti-capitalistic. Yeah, dude. And it really it hurts that consumer, like you said. Yes. Yes, it does. It does. And it hurts a small, it, it hurts the American dream. And it hurts, you know, the small person that wants to make a difference and do their own thing or whatever. Like that's the American dream. And that's right. also what makes me so disgusted about 2020. Like you're saying that, this small business that feeds someone, that feeds family, and that maybe has their life invested in it, their life savings. I mean, you know how many small businesses where the owner puts every penny they have and then, and then some, and a lot of times they're not even making a lot of money because they're trying to get to that point where they can break even and make money. Like, and then you say that's not essential? Yeah. What? Working 100 hours a week. Me? It's their whole livelihood. Yeah. Yeah. So sick. And there's, there's a lot of people feeling that pain this year. Too. Oh man. It, I like, honestly, if they didn't like patch over with some of the money and do some of the things they've done, I think we would have had a revolution. And I think we still might, because like the effects are actually going to probably show up next year. Like that's what people don't understand. These things are like when people run out of savings and then, and then, and then they're worried about like where to get food. Like people yeah. are good if they have money for a while and like you give them some money and whatever. But after a while, man, I mean that the French revolution was people starving in the streets and all they wanted was bread. That's, that was the start of it. Right. Yeah, I mean, if it comes to like surviving and getting food, like it, people are going to revert to like, you know, net human baseline Violence. nature Violence. of like, I'm going to get yes. food and eat. Yes. So, yep. so I have a couple more questions about wild food uh, that yep. first year, especially you put it up on Amazon. Maybe it was at a time where Amazon would drive you some organic traffic. 
Or were you doing some other marketing stuff to get people to buy? That? I literally did nothing. Whoa. So that's that. Like that, I, did, I don't think you could do today. So yeah, you're probably right. I'd have to think about that. So here's the thing. Like when I say I did nothing, I did tons and tons of iterations of the branding and the labeling, yeah, yeah. right? To this day, we have very good branding and labeling, but I mean, I mean, as a CEO, even when I had employees, I would go in illustrator, which I taught myself yeah. and I would make <laughs> tweaks and I would move things around and I would like look at YouTube tutorials. And honestly, you see the quality, right? Because then I could talk to my designer who she's in Slovenia or someplace. I don't know. And she kind of intuitively knows what I want, but that's because I've trained her over months and months and labels and labels. And like when I now just as now that we kind of have a partner and we have a team in Orlando, like they'll send me something and I'm, and I have to like redo that process. Like they can look at a label I've done, but they can't replicate it. So I don't know. It's one of those, those things that it's hard to quantify. It's like, why is Apple Apple, right? Yeah. Well, Jobs is basically like, he, he gets a product back and he's like, are you kidding me? This is garbage. Even if it's like 99% correct or whatever, right? And yeah. like, that's always what I've thought about is the importance of the founder. The founder always cares more and always sees more than anybody else in the company, hands down, no exception. Even like the second investor or silent partner will never see it the way a founder does, right? So, so true. I put that into that first product and then I did the listing and the bullets and the titles and I, and I consumed every podcast on Amazon. I read every article on Amazon I could think of. So I invested a lot into figuring out like what is the best listing. And I can say that it was probably like in the upper percent of like listing with optimization and, and bullets and copywriting and all those things. So like I did invest that into it, but then Amazon just literally, it showed up and they sold. Today, there is a lot of competition. So that might not be the case. And it's a little bit more of a pay to play. So you maybe have to invest in ads. Yeah. Uh, it's not the same as it used to be. Um, so well, I'm you, smiling you know, because right. I mean, I, so my girlfriend is, she's a branding and designer. She's a the senior director for the San Luis Blues, got the mm. blue shirt on. Mm. Uh, and I'm laughing because I've done a number of different businesses, but I've always like, just like you did, like I'm literally, I'm not a designer by any means, but I'm in there tinkering with the logo. You know, yep. I'm working with someone on Fiverr to tinker with this and that, and like just trying to like, you know, get that, you know, you gotta, you gotta do things with the interesting entrepreneurs to wear like every single hat, like literally every hat. Yep. And that includes like doing ridiculous things, kind of like, which seem ridiculous. Like you're saying what, when it comes to fulfillment, you know, working with the UPS guy, doing the design, like literally yep. everything. Uh, so when did you start? First of all, I want to ask, you hired your first employee. I want to know how you found her and then what was her first role? Was she doing fulfillment? She was, yeah, she was fulfillment orders and uh, packing product primarily. Okay. Did you right? do much customer service? Stuff? I did. So it's funny. I, I was actually on a, um, I was on a, a panel like last week. Uh, it was about e-commerce and stuff and they invited me on or whatever. And so I went on and you know, one guy was on there. They're doing obviously multi, they're doing tons of money, some organic like skincare brand. And he talked about how like they had trouble outsourcing the customer service and like he, they finally had to get it out, et cetera. And I made a point, kind of a counterpoint, like I did customer service every single email for probably the first two and a half years of the business. Mm -hmm. Even when I had employees that could probably handle it. And yep. even when I finally got an employee to handle it, I wanted to be like very much in there, you know, because I've read Danny Meyer's hospitality. I've been studying marketing and customer service and all the nonfiction books you read about like how to wow customers and magic and this and that. And really a lot of what it comes down to, it's just being genuine with people, showing that, you know, being able to communicate that through email and solving their problems to get them to where they want to be as fast as possible. Right. Cause like yeah. even to this day, now that we have outsourced customer service, I sometimes see email threads that take seven emails and I'm like, wait a second, this is a problem. Yeah. Their first email said, 
basically gave me all the data. I don't need to like verify anything. I don't need to worry about ever trying to cheat us. Even if, even if one in 10 people try to cheat us and I send them a free product, the nine that aren't are going to get their stuff resolved faster and be happier. So I'm just like, usually one email, free product. It's on the way. Here's tracking. Thank you. And then I also close the ticket out, right? So I save time, you know, it's hard for employees to do that though. They're not empowered to do that. So it's kind of something that as we evolve as a CEO, you become more of like an engineer where you like engineer parts of the business where I can go into something like that. And I say, okay, how do we build systems for this so that you are empowered? Like if it's under $30, just send them a new product. Don't even ask me, don't say anything, don't do anything. Don't ask them to verify, send them a new product to their address and then say it's on the way and they're going to love you for it. Right. So it's like, the question was customer service. I don't remember what the original question was, but it's like, my point is be in there. You're talking about people online. They're your customers, right? It's like in a small business when the owner's there and you get to know the owner and you expect to see the owner and then all of a sudden the owner's not there anymore. It does feel different, yeah. right? Like owner-led, owner-involved businesses, people respond to that, right? But it's also that, that intangible, like, I care more. Like, I just yep. care more and people feel it. Yep. I, I think that, I think what's, what, you, what you're saying is super smart for, especially early CEOs, early businesses, is customer support and product should be very close, if not the same person in communication. Because mm-hmm. if you're getting a ton of support, well, especially if it's like a software product, which you know I had a software company, if customer support's hitting me and I'm not the developer, and then I got to relay that message to the developer, and you know they're probably not trusting everything I'm saying. Whereas if that person was talking directly to the engineer of the product, like, oh man, I'm going to fix this bug so I don't get a hundred other support requests. You know, yeah. so and it's also product improvement. It's also exactly. innovative. how do you innovate? I mean, you listen to the feedback. Yeah, you're like, okay, maybe this product isn't so intuitive to use or, or you know, right. exactly. So it's, it's all about, you yep. know, your customers yep. can help you refine your product. Uh, so when did you start spending money on marketing? I know it happened eventually, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, no, it, it did. And I mean, even to this day, we only probably spend like 10% of gross on marketing. Like it's, yeah. there's a lot of, comp- there's a lot of reasons for that. Like being an Amazon business, it's, it's way more competitive with ads and like our DTC channel, which is basically off Amazon efforts is kind of, um, it, it's a much harder game, you know, because like, obviously Amazon has all the customers and if you want to bring people off of Instagram or Facebook. You got to bring someone from a platform somewhere else. It's a hard proposition, right? Yeah. And so a lot, a lot of businesses, what you see, if they're in a physical product spaces, they usually pick one. So they either are an Amazon business or they're a DTC business and they just focus on like funnels and ads, right? I was We're just trying to that. bridge that gap a little bit, you know? So my strategy with Amazon which was, I got to give credit to Ryan Daniel Moran, who's a big Amazon guy and he's actually a buddy of mine now. And he actually featured us in his recent book, a really good book about all this, but he, um, he talked about building an audience, right? And yeah. so I took that to heart and I was like, okay, well, how do we build an audience? We have Amazon customers. They like the product. They like something about it appeals to them because there's, there's lots of other options, right? Yeah. So how do I get them from Amazon to my email list and to our website? Because yeah. ideally, if we got them buying on our website, our margins go through the roof because Amazon doesn't take as much and we can bundle things together, right? Yeah, exactly. So it was like inserts, coupons. Um, it was like maybe URLs and little call to actions on labels. And again, this is, these are things that as a CEO that can actually get into labels, I can take a new label and I can just drop something on and I know how to flatten the text and everything. Whereas if I had to like send that to a third party, I got to say, do it this way, do it that way. And then iterations, we're just talking about like kind of a supply chain from a design side that's like very complex versus me just literally getting in and doing it. Yeah. And a lot of times there's a lot to be said for speed and just getting things done. Right. So my, my effort probably at like when we hit a million was get people off Amazon and build our website. And then from there was content, all the stuff that you still do yep. today, content, podcasting, YouTube, and yep. articles, uh, you know, 
writing long guides on the website and then connecting that to our email marketing. And we've yep. been doing that for a long time and we're, we just actually revamped a lot of it and we're on like Clavio now and a new um, website and everything. It's a lot cleaner and we're going to be putting like a big effort into articles and more content. Um, but it's hard, man. It's hard to balance this because it's always been the hardest struggle for this business has always been to just keep enough stock in. Right. And sometimes that's based on demand. Sometimes that's based on um, like not hitting a, like, like a metric slipping through and us not realizing we were low in stock. And then, and, and then a lot of times it's just suppliers. Uh, you know, sometimes we work with small suppliers and they just don't budget things correctly. Like there's yeah. always a problem. It seems like when you're most out of something is when the supplier also has the most problems getting it to you. Right. It's just, yeah. it's that it's the insanity of it, of, of, of running something that's, that's complex like this. And so I went very wide on Amazon because I was like, the idea was, let me get a bunch of listings and kind of treat it as a, like a bigger net. What I probably should have done in retrospect is I should have taken my core 10 sellers and just put every dollar into inventory and ads as possible to get to the top, right? Yeah. yeah. It's one of those things, hindsight is twenty twenty, but we still, I still think there's a benefit to having like, like a little bit more SKUs and being a little bit more of a DTC brand versus just like an Amazon business with like five products. Cause like, you know, I might've made more money in, in the former, but, but by having more products and having more of a DTC presence. I can build more of a brand and I can have more of a long-term staying potential that can attract people. And now we're, we just got actually, um, we just got approved for Kehi, which is one of the biggest organic distributors in the country. And so we're like kind of making a push into retail. I kept putting it off for years because like it takes money and it's really hard. And yeah. now things kind of fell together where if, if we could get a few products in retail, it could be a nice extra leg of the business. Yeah. And I know I'm asking a lot of business questions and you know, it's in self-interest. I have business. I know you've had a lot of success and I think a lot of listeners you know, are more on the entrepreneurial side as well, uh, sure. whether side hustles or owning their own business or whatnot. Uh, and you answered one of the questions because I, so we have, I have a physical product company. It's in, you know, it's sleep disorder, breathing, snoring, and something with my partner and I, and I've always been like, look, I don't want to list on Amazon because I want to build a brand. I, I want to own the customer. Like you said, I want to have them on my list. I want to be able mm-hmm. to, you know, engage with them, give them content, you know, help them on their journey. I don't want it to be like a one off sale and done kind of thing. And so, and as you go into retailers, are you afraid of basically the fears like these mega stores kind of cannibalizing your brand or commoditizing it? Yeah. So I have a few comments on all that. This is definitely, um, at this point, this is a straight coaching session, at least for this point, because this is, <laughs> because this is, I have a lot to say on this and a lot of insight. So if you go to Costco, Costco cannibalizes brands all the time. Yep. Walmart cannibalizes brands all the time. Yep. If that's not, your situation, you probably don't need to worry about, right? So here's the thing. I will find products, sometimes esoteric products. Like we, I needed a perfect example. I needed a water filter for my fridge. It's a specific model, specific kind. And there's like some third party options that are like similar, but you kind of have to know what you're looking for. Okay. So we find that model on Google. There's this website that is a third party website. And I take the model number and I go to Amazon. I did not buy from that website. I bought from Amazon. Yep. I enjoy the speed, convenience, and the returnability of products, and I default to buying on Amazon every time I can. Mm, okay, yeah. even though, even though I love it when people go off Amazon to my site, but at the same time, if they're buying from me on Amazon and that's more convenient for them, they're still buying from me and they're still my customer. And we sell, obviously, we sell recurring products, so like that's something to keep in mind. If you have like a high ticket item and it's like a one of sale, I don't know, maybe you don't want to be on Amazon. Like so, this isn't like universal by any means. But from what I've seen, the future of all these trends is people are going to go for the place that is most convenient, that has the fastest shipping and has the best service. And that's what Amazon has, yeah. right? Amazon, even if you agree with 
it or the things it's done, it is a net benefit to humanity. Okay. Oh yeah. And it will continue to be, and it will also open the door to just raising the level of everything. Right. So I just tell everyone, you have to be on Amazon. You don't necessarily have to invest a bunch of money and try to like grow Amazon, but you need to be there. If just for the people that are trying to find you that want an easier solution. Okay. Now the thing is you got to control pricing and you don't want to get into like, like if you go on Amazon, you're trying to like compete with other people and you get into the pricing game. It, it, it's obviously a, it's a, um, what is it? It's a, like a zero sum game. Yeah. Yeah. You, you get put, the prices get pushed down, right? Yep. That's the thing about Amazon because there's so much competition, right? So, but that's why you want a brand. That's why brands on Amazon can actually charge a higher premium, right? So that's, how, that's where the brand protects you. Yep. Whereas you don't necessarily have to like be afraid of Amazon. You just go on it. But if you look at every single major DTC supplement brand on it, Bulletproof Coffee, Four Sigmatic, all these brands, they all charge way more than literally identical products on Amazon and people will buy it, but they're not optimizing for Amazon and it's not their main channel. It's just a yeah. place that's there through convenience. So you keep your pricing the same. Maybe you get like a little bit of a discount because people come to expect that on Amazon and you have kind of your website is like your set pricing. And then if you do go into something like retail, usually we actually just went through this. We had to kind of adjust some of our pricing because like Kehi wants a certain uh, price. But what's funny is through that process, Kehi actually allowed us to have less uh, a lower price on Amazon hmm. than even retail because the, the market, everyone knows that if you go to Amazon, it's usually cheaper. So now even distributors are kind of just like accepting that as reality, right? That, yeah. That's the power that, that Amazon has had. And so on our website, it, it'll be more expensive. So what we do is on our website is we create bundle offers, we throw in uh, bonuses and handwritten cards, and we do like all that extra touch. Yeah. And we have like a one-on-one relationship with them. Whereas if they buy on Amazon, they just talk to like, you know, someone in India, basically most of the time. Right. So like we do balance it out in that way. Do you have any idea? So let's say you're paying for ad traffic to your website. How many people do you think, or do you know, like, all right, I'm going to buy this, this whey protein, but I'm going to go look it up on Amazon. Do you think a a significant portion do that? Oh, I mean, totally. Like this is a hard, no one knows this though. This this is not really something that we've been able to track yet because you would have to pixel your website you have to pixel Amazon somehow. Amazon you can't, sales, you right. Yeah, you can't really pixel Amazon and Amazon doesn't give you like customer email data. Like if, if Amazon gave you the, the real emails of customers versus the Amazon like fake email, yep. it, we, we, we could track this maybe or something, right? But right. they do that on purpose, right? So it's one of those things that there's a percent of every demographic. This is something you'll learn in business, right? So there's always somebody that will buy the premium product. Oh, yeah. You just make it the premium, they'll buy it because it's the most expensive to them, prices, value. There's somebody that will always try to buy the cheapest version of a product because to them, they don't want to spend the money or whatever. And they have a difference of like their perception of price and value. And yeah. then you have most people where if they, they look at the top price, look at maybe this price, or that option, or a couple other options, and they'll kind of go to the one that it speaks to them the most. And maybe they'll spend an extra dollar or two, mostly because they're not going to spend like 30 minutes, like trying to save a dollar on cocoa powder. Exactly. Right? So like exactly. you have this. I, I think most people kind of fit in the middle, right? If you look at a bell curve, that's where mo- most people are going to be. And that's the power of the brand. Brand, right? they already know. They're like, that's look, I like this brand. I'm going to spend an extra dollar, yeah. but I'm not going to search the ingredients anymore. I know I like them. Yeah, so right on. All right, that's so I know buy Apple. That's why people buy Apple. When you can get PCs that are faster, better specs than a, than a MacBook. But I, I literally buy the MacBook every year, sell my old one because it has higher resale value. It's Apple. It fits everything. Yeah. And- 
I don't want to spend any time. And I, I mean, I hate windows as it is. And I don't like saying hate, but I literally can't stand windows. <laughs> I, I call them, I call them Bill Gates computers. I always make fun of Brent for using a windows, but I'm just like a Mac person. So like, yeah. I, that's the power of brand. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to deviate a little bit from business because I've cannibalized uh, a lot of the time on that. Uh, a few things that I had notes here, because you sent out a list in your newsletter, awesome points, like, like life points in a bullet list. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, some good, uh, you know, personal development ones. But one that stuck out was like, you are big into jiu-jitsu. And I know a lot of other people are as well. I don't know anything about it, but it seems like it's got, a, it's like a growing following of people that are very passionate about it. What yes. is it? Is it the discipline, the fighting? What, I, I, what is it that draws people? Because I know you said, you know, your son's definitely gonna be doing it, right? And I'm yep. curious, like, why is that? Yeah, so I grew up as a martial artist. So I already have an appreciation for martial arts, right? Yeah. Bruce Lee, childhood idol, whatever. And you know, I was Taekwondo, basically a black belt. And I did karate for a little bit and whatever. And it is, it's something that, you know, they call it an art, right? And art is one of those things that you can't seek perfection. And so therefore it becomes the pursuit of the art that is the reward, right? So it's like the perfect, it's the perfect analogy for everything in life where like, if I, if I want to be, um, like even like if I want to be a writer or if I want to write movies or whatever, like you're never perfect. And right. so you get lost in the flow of the pursuit itself. Jiu-jitsu for me is kind of like that missing, uh, it's a missing, for me, it's a missing part of my life that I've kind of put on the back burner. I, I, I got a gi like two years ago and I was just like too busy and I just couldn't commit to it. It's something I've wanted to do forever. I, as a kid, I used to grapple with my friends. Like that was fun. We were into martial yeah. arts and everything. And obviously it's becoming very popular for a lot of reasons. Kids, I think for kids, it's probably the most amazing thing you can do because it teaches you discipline. It actually, it teaches you what violence is and you develop a respect for it. And you actually get further removed from like the, the kind of the bad violence where like you respond emotionally and then something bad happens. Like, like that's what martial arts help you do. And that's why a lot of parents put their kids into it because it's more of a discipline thing or whatever. But I also just think it's just one of those things like, the confidence that comes from knowing how to take care of yourself. I mean, you just can't, you can't put a like, price on that. You can't, you can't put a price on it. And yeah. I, I feel like maybe part of my upbringing in, in kind of the critical thinking is having that myself. Like I am not really afraid of anyone. Like, I don't care if you're a 300 pound dude. Like I, I just, I, I'm not afraid of that. Right. Like it doesn't yep. enter my mind. Like, and so yep. it's, um, it's not even an ego thing. It's just like a, it, it's almost like a being prepared thing. So obviously in 2020, I've been talking about a lot about preparedness, buying gold, buying silver, looking into properties in Mexico, all these things, like crazy things. Right. Yep. Um, and if you can't protect your person and your family physically, that is the greatest hole in your, in your, in your survival thing. Right. Yeah. Like, and so I just feel like it's one of those lost skills. Like, like a hundred years ago, if you didn't know how to like build a basic fire or I don't know, whatever the skills were a hundred years ago, like people would like kind of laugh at you. Like there's no way you're going to survive in this environment or whatever. Um, maybe 5,000 years ago is better. I don't know. But like, there's just certain skills that as we go through epochs of, you know, of, of evolution of technology and whatever, like even just cooking, most people don't know how to cook. Right. Think about that. Like literally a lot of people don't know how to like make tea, like heat, boil water. Like that's how right. disconnected we are from just basic survival skills. And yeah. so a lot of times the basic survival skills are just something that is like, it's, it's, it helps you get in touch with humanity. It helps you build confidence. It helps you just not be reliant on other people. Like it, it's self-reliance. That's what it is. It's literally self-reliance. It's probably yep. the simplest, simplest way I could put it. Yep. And I think you touched on it. The, the activities I enjoy the most that I love the most is what you just said is like, are things that 
Yeah, can never be perfect at like, and I think bodybuilding is actually a good example because like you can ask any bodybuilder like if you could ever get them, you can always improve something. So it's like the art of ever improving, ever striving, and really enjoying the flow of that process. Yep. And all the various areas of my life, I do things like this where it's like I might be bad at it, but it's the the fact of you know the slow progress, the fact that it's okay, it's never be perfect. There's no such thing as perfect, and you know just continuing to do it anyways, get better. Uh, those are the things like yep. I enjoy the most. Yep. So, I mean, it totally makes sense. Uh, you, you mentioned gold, silver, Bitcoin. What, let's see. Because I've, I've really liked a lot of your, your financial. Pick I one, call, pick one, and I'll talk about it. I, I <laughs> say, there's three of them. <laughs> I don't say financial advice, uh, but finan- your, your financial opinions. Uh, I'm big into Bitcoin. People that follow me know that. Uh, you know, I've been studying it since the I'll call it the first bubble in 2013, which really yep. piqued my interest. I should have wished I would have went all in then, but at least, you know. But if you would bit, have, would you have sold? You know, it, it, obviously. I my, wouldn't have. Obviously, my level of conviction in 2013 wasn't enough. Okay, there was no. Yeah, maybe. That, that, there, there was no easy exchange in 2013. And since I'm only semi-technical, for me to get, I, I got a Bitcoin wallet. But for me yep. to fill that wallet, I, it was going to take a lot more. Like I would have to become sure. a miner or something like that. Uh, so uh, I did, there was no easy, like on ramp, like there is today. So tell me just briefly, let, let, let's give like the, the listener a, a 20,000 foot overview of what you think about these asset classes. Well, let's go with Bitcoin first. So yeah. Bitcoin it, it is the future of money. Okay. It is the, it is one of the greatest inventions of mankind. Okay. Now the reason for this though, is because it is a truly decentralized, unassailable, unattackable. Like if you had a trillion dollars and you try to tag it, like if some government did, like a lot of people talk about this, it would just make the network stronger. The internet also is very similar. It's a decentralized model, right? You can't just turn the internet off. You can turn off certain parts of the internet, but as long as somebody can get connected again to another computer, you can basically have the internet again, right? So it's uh, it would take like a global catastrophic solar flare or like uh, the entire power grid going out or, or like, I mean, things that wouldn't even matter. Money wouldn't matter because we'd be more worried about right. life or it, death, right? Almost the world would have to be ending in exactly. order to, right. to shut it down. Right. Bitcoin. Yeah. And, and, then, and then there's a point where we can actually send, we can send the blockchain on a zip drive to another planet as a backup. Right? People don't understand that. Like we might not be able to update that blockchain, like post that, but we, I mean, I won't get into that. That's, that's very technical rabbit hole, but it's the purest form of money. It's decentralized. Nobody can control it. Nobody can own it. Right. And in some way, whether it's Bitcoin or maybe some new thing that evolves out of it, although nobody's been able to do it at this point, right? This is why I'm not a fan of any altcoins. All altcoins are, are basically startups that are just trying to find like a product market fit. And it's basically gambling, whereas Bitcoin is pure, real, digital money. It has all the parameters of hardness. It has all the parameters of something that you, you, you can't duplicate, you can't fake, and it has true scarcity. There's only going to be 21 million Bitcoins. I believe it's 21 million. It might be like 20. No, you're right, something. but it's going to be less than that. I mean, it, because of all the Bitcoin already lost, which is at least probably 3 million. That's true. So. Yeah, but like 21 total, right? Maybe yeah, we yeah. Find some, maybe we don't. So like there is true scarcity. Gold, for example is a very strong asset and, and it's a very strong money because of these other variables, most of which is very expensive to get out of the ground. But guess what? There's like tons of gold still in the earth. Yep. What if we start mining asteroids and we found a big comet that's full of gold, platinum, palladium, whatever, all those metals will drop in price. The only reason that it has value today is because it's scarce to get above ground and be used. When we can escape gravity, and this is also what I talk about when people think about, or they talk about um, sustainability, I call BS on sustainability. Okay, because here's why, because the universe has more resources than humans could ever use in 
forever. I mean, mm-hmm. literally forever. We're talking about billions and billions and billions and billions of planets and stars and whatever. There's every element in the universe that we hold value here today. The only reason we hold value for it is because you can't take a rocket out right. cheaply and bring it back. Because the scarcity right? on the planet. Exactly. So, so it's the escape. It's the price of escaping gravity and coming back and whatever. And really, when we have the space kind of, um, we'll have a space boom for sure. And Musk is at the head of that. But when we yeah, have a space starting, boom, yeah. yeah, we're starting. We'll start bringing, uh, we'll, we'll be mining asteroids or other things. We'll then bring them probably to space stations. And then we'll build things outside of Earth's atmosphere because it won't make sense to bring it back here. Yep. So a lot of people don't think about that, right? And so space stations will become a thing. The entire space industry where like, you can go live on the moon, like it's going to be insanity. But the, as far as, it, I mean, we're getting off topic here, but like Bitcoin, it's one of these things that you can't, you can't duplicate. You can't, you can't, I mean, it's just the perfect form of yep. money. It, it's almost, um, it's almost uh, spiritual in a way. Like, like it's, it's one of human's greatest manifestations. I think it's going to be, you know, right there with the internet, with the greatest innovations of the last you know, hundred yep. years. Yep. Uh, so tell me why, because I, I don't buy gold because I guess I'm such a, I'm, I'm so convinced in Bitcoin that to me, it's like gold could be a safe haven, but the upside of Bitcoin is that asymmetrically larger. So I would just put more assets in, into Bitcoin. Yep. Is there an argument for me putting money into gold as well? Uh, just to, you know, as a hedge, just in case, you know, just in yes, case there is, but it's not, it, I guess every day that Bitcoin becomes more historically valid, gold becomes less. So the strength yeah. of gold anyways. Right. But it's one of those things. It's like, it's, it's been the longest form of money in existence. Uh, silver's yeah. actually been used more than gold in, in monetary. So I kind of put gold and silver in the same bucket. Yeah. And um, gold has some industrial application where silver has way more industrial application. And that's actually why I own more silver than I do gold. Interesting. And, and so uh, you have a lot of different parameters, but also the central banks have been buying up gold for, for 10 years now because they know that all this debt they keep creating, like it's when it resets, we're going to go back to gold. We're going to go back to silver, some kind of right. gold standard. And so there are reasons to have gold. Now, it just comes down to the ratio, right? Yeah. So your trust and, and your own prediction of the future is where you would allocate resources based on that trust, right? If yeah. people put money in the stock market, it's because they think that those companies have a future proposition. That's all it is. Right. Same thing with gold, Bitcoin, whatever. And so you're right. Bitcoin, for me, if Bitcoin hits $50,000 a coin, for example, I don't even know if I'll sell at that point. Now, there will be a time where I might sell. I might sell as long as the, the speed at which it's rising isn't too fast. Like if every day is going up, astronomical numbers, I probably won't sell because like, you know, you probably shouldn't. But if I can convert Bitcoin into tangible real estate and or businesses, I will do that because that's for me. The end goal is take silver, gold, Bitcoin and convert them into something that produces income that provides a service or a product. And that's how you build real wealth. I, I, it's funny because I was just talking. So I got my girlfriend onto Bitcoin several years ago and I said, look, if Bitcoin hits 250,000 in the next 18 months, then I'll consider selling some. Yeah, 100 to 250, I'm probably selling to buy real estate, to be honest. <laughs> so yeah. that, you know, that's what I said. Uh, okay, we're running out of time here. I, one, I, one last question. Or, yeah, let's do one uh, because you and I we are got both, fi- We got 15 minutes if you, you want. We got 15? Couple. Okay. I, I, yeah, just I, got want, 15. I don't want you to go over. No, uh, I'll, I'll let you know if we have to cut off. That's fine. Okay. So books. I want to talk about books. Yep. I'm an avid reader. I know you're an avid reader as well. Uh, first of all, you've mentioned Osho now a few times. I don't know much about him besides he's a, you know, he was an Indian mystic is about the extent of my knowledge, but you seem yep. like you're reading him now, I guess. And, and you've yep. found it insightful. What kind of, what kind of take home messages have you got, got from Well, him? so this is really funny because this is one of those things that just came up through accident. I posted a quote that I found somewhere on the internet 
because I like on my Instagram, I, I like to find quotes and then I write about them. And it's like kind of my mm-hmm. daily routine. And I found this Osho quote, something related to government, I believe, because he was very anti-government. And that's mm-hmm. another reason why yeah. people didn't like him. And so I, I posted about that quote. Somebody dropped a comment on my Instagram saying like Osho was this and he was that. I don't know why people quote him. And then so I kind of responded, well, what does that have to do with the message? Like, do you disagree with what he said here? And the guy's kind of, and, and I mean, to this guy's credit, because most people can't backtrack on this. He's like, you're right. You don't have to like the person or the messenger to appreciate the message. And so that was that. And then like a couple days later, weeks later, I was watching this guy. I watched Dollar Vigilante, who's like a straight conspiracy theorist guy. He's kind of out there, but he's got a lot of good points about like red pill and all the things going on and the insanity of governments. He mentioned Osho and he's like, yeah, his books are amazing. And anytime somebody, I mean, I'm telling you, like almost anytime anybody says this book is amazing, I go buy it immediately. Right? It's just, it's just, it's just a heuristic. I don't care. I don't like, and, and if it's a hard to find book, I'll spend a hundred dollars to get it. Like, I've spent like a hundred dollars on ad print books because somebody said it's amazing. Right. Yeah. If, if somebody says a book is amazing and I can get like two things out of it or one thing, it's worth the investment. Right. Oh, yeah. So I go to scribe.com, which is a service everybody should have. It's like Netflix for books. I saw and your video what? on that. I'll, I should, I'll yeah, link it's that. so amazing, man. Like nobody even knows about it really. It's so, it's so under, underutilized. And there's like 20 Osho books and I'm like, well, jackpot. So <laughs> the first one I find is, uh, it was, I believe it's called, um, what is the real meaning of success or something like that? Like, and it was like money, fame, and ambition. And I was like, okay, well that's very near and dear to my heart as an entrepreneur. I've always been very self-aware of how much am I working? What am I going after? Is it just about the money? Is it about this? And those times where I'm feeling like plateauing or it's really hard remind myself of the mission. Like you have to be, these are all traps. These are traps for all of us, right? Like yep. you get money and results and like, you want more of it and you get addicted to the, you get addicted to the, the those good feelings or whatever. And so I've visible. always been very, yeah. yeah, very, very aware of that and trying to uh, mitigate that. So this book spoke to me and I want to hear what he had to say. I kid you not the introduction. I highlighted the entire introduction. <laughs> all like, right. I'm checking this the entire out. introduction. Right. Right. And so I'm like, okay, something's going on here. Then I read the whole book in like three days and I'm like, wow, I'm literally highlighting like every other paragraph or page or whatever. So then I started looking into him, him, the guy himself. And I know there was like a wild, wild country documentary or something. I watched 30 minutes of it and I kind of got an idea of how the narrative was going. And they were basically going to try to like make it look like this cult or whatever. And I just stopped. I don't care. Yeah. I care about what the guy has to say. And, and then when I started reading his material and I saw, saw how he basically called BS on everything in society, I mean, government relationships, m- I mean, money attachment, like he big on meditating. He was like anti everything. Yeah. As somebody who is like you said, kind of like an iconoclast, I think for myself or whatever, this stuff is stuff that I've kind of been learning for years. And then that he's now speaking to me and it speaks right to me. Right. Yeah. But here's the thing. This is, this is the lesson for everyone here. The lesson is something known as the halo effect and the horn effect. So the horn effect is basically, there's like one negative trait about somebody, which if, you lo- if you're into politics, like this is why a lot of people don't like Trump because he's not a good speaker and he's like, can be brash. And so they just like, they can't stand the guy the way he talks and they just ignore his policies. We don't even get, get into that, but this is a real psychological bias that has implications in everyday life. If you don't like your boss or this person, or that person, because of like some weird quirk, now everything they say to you is like wrong or negative or whatever. And this is a very dangerous proposition that it's called people the horn fall effect? into. Horn? So the horn effect, and you know, again, everyone should look this up because yeah, like, I've not even I'm always heard of that before, but I, it's the opposite of the halo effect. The halo okay. effect is where like, yes, I love I, this person and everything they say is great or whatever. Right. And so it, it, it warps your manipulation of your mind or it kind of manipulates your mind to where if you like somebody, there's a likability bias, anything they say, whatever. If you don't like somebody, nothing they say, Right. And you can see this right. in politics. It's the easiest thing. It's, it's literally got a line drawn in the sand and everybody on either side is 
it's their side yeah. or no side. Yeah. You know? So it's so, a halo effect like, okay, this there's this celebrity, they're a really good actor, let's say. And so they give you an opinion about health. Politics we, or something. And, or health, and we yeah. assume it's correct because they're a good actor when there's a large disconnect between that. Yep. So that, that's co- the halo confirma- yeah, confirmation kicks confirmation bias, which is the most prevalent bias that humans fall victim to, kicks For in sure. and says, This person says this, though these other people are saying this. And I'm going to kind of believe this person and I'm going to kind of ignore that person. And like, I mean, think about it. Like, that's not a good way to think. That's not yeah. how you critically think about anything. And so the fact that Osho has been like canceled and like, if he was alive today, dude, he would have so many Twitter haters. Like, it'd be insane because like yeah. he calls BS on everything. Yeah. And like, it makes me like the guy even more. Yeah. That's interesting because I'll say, I'll call on my mentors. Most of them are dead. Just so mentors through books. Yep. I don't, people ask me, I, I don't tell them probably my biggest influences in my entire life because i didn't know it was the horn effect but if you look into their past or look into about them they got this one blight you know or this blight or something. this yeah and I'm, I'm like you know what i couldn't care less about that yep. if you study the person enough and the message enough like that becomes just like like a non-issue but, well, think, but think i don't this. i don't tell people about these these people that have influenced me probably more than anyone because of this horn effect i'm like because they'll just say oh yeah well, I, I think you should though yeah, probably should because because when people come at you with their bias, if you use questions and you're a way more measured guy than I am, like I could, you're the type of person that I could talk to about contentious topics and I know it would go well. Whereas there's people where I can be loud, aggressive, whatever. And I can even be like, I'm working on it. I'm trying to use questions more is basically what I'm trying to say, <laughs> you know, because like I sometimes talk too much at people because I have a lot to say and have strong opinions, but that's not really how you change people's mind. And so that's kind of something I'm wrestling with. I'm trying to get better at asking questions. But um, the point about, the, uh, about the, the mentor, like, think about this, like, everybody focuses so much on, like, jobs and, like, the things he did and, like, his negative traits. But, I mean, dude, like, you don't build the, the most successful company in history by just being a guy that everybody likes, right? So that's yeah. one principle. The second principle is, what did he get done? What, how was he, you know, what was the effectiveness or, or the things he accomplished, right? And... Like, why do people care? So, and I know why they care, but people care because it's how they make decisions based on humans. Humans make decisions of other humans based on certain heuristics. They want to, they want an easy, good or bad opinion. And that simplifies reality, Yep. right? That that's what we want, right? And yep. it applies to everything, health advice, politics. I want them bad, them good, line down the middle, simplify my life. Black right? And, and it's, yep. it's not a good way to it. Honestly, if you think about it, like even scientists fall victim to this. Like a lot, like you see a lot of really bad stuff and bias and research. I'm reading a whole book on this called science fiction. It's, it's actually incredible how much, how much, how many bad things there are in science and peer review and all these different things. Oh but my gosh. Yeah. It's really bad. It's really bad. Like it's, it's probably worse than people even think. Cause a lot of it goes undiagnosed or unreported, yep. you know? And so it's not how you want to think about big decisions in your life, whether, whether money finances, health, like when you outsource your thinking to somebody else, you're trusting that they've done this mountain of research and they've they've thought these things through and they've taken all these other points and, and filtered them through and made a good decision when 99% of people don't do that. And 99% of people say like, this is what I was taught or this is what's normal. And that's what I'm going to tell other people to do. Yep. Like, and then it's just more people getting sucked in as sheep, basically. Yep. I hate to say it, but that's what it is. Yeah. And, <laughs> I mean, that, that's how you put it. I, I, I've used like the term sheep and, and really sheep get very upset when they're called out a sheep. It's not a nice thing to say <laughs> by any means, but, but, it, but it's, it gets the point across yeah. kind of like, yeah, 
Yeah, I gotta think. I gotta think of a different word because honestly, <laughs> dude, like for me, I will never back down from a fight or a brawl. Like, like I'm an, like an online brawler. Like I, I, I'll respond to everything anybody says. Like yeah. I always have something to say, and it's not it's not an easy thing to have as a personality quirk, you know? Because like <laughs> I remember I got pulled into a GMO discussion the other day of like eight commenters co- coming at me, and every time I check on my phone, it's like showing up, and I like, get pulled into it, and I had to just delete and block the people, not yeah. because like like I feel better, but I just could not mentally take another comment. Yeah. Right. And Instagram, you can't like turn notifications off. So like it, sh- it keeps showing up. So yeah, it's a, uh, oh man, it's tricky. It's really tricky. The internet is, is I think our greatest existential threat as a species for these various reasons. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, so my girlfriend has a nine year old, he just turned nine and I'm like, yeah, he's going to grow up with a lot of challenges because of the internet, I think. Everything that we School, didn't have internet, yeah. politics, uh, propaganda infecting schools, indoctrination. This generation of kids is they have the most, they have, I mean, it's it's bad, like they have so much that they have to deal with. It's really I mean, bad. I see it on like the spectrums of like, okay, you're gonna have to deal with this, but they also have the benefit of maybe that we didn't have is well, look, you can go online right now and look up entrepreneur stuff, things like that. You can, you can open your eyes to more signal stuff versus noise, well. though. Yeah. Signal, signal and there's, noise. And there's a lot there's of noise. more noise. There's, there's a whole more lot. noise than ever before. <laughs> there's a whole lot of noise. Yep. You're right. Yep. And so this conversation has been great. Uh, I know you got a hard stop here. Uh, where can people find you? I know your newsletter. Yep. Uh, so everything's me, right over at, at, over at Colin.coach. And then I'm on Instagram, Colin Stuckert. And I do want to make one more comment about yeah, the, uh, the noise versus signal. Yeah. So I've thought about this a lot uh, because I've had friends and family where I'm like, I want to motivate them to like start their own business or whatever. I used to think everybody could be an entrepreneur. I don't think that anymore. But everybody could probably be a remote employee or a freelancer or literally not have to work their whole life to make some money under this idea that they'll retire. Like you can do lifestyle design, which is, I recommend everyone kind of look into. But the other point that I've been thinking about is why are the 1% always a 1%? Okay. The 1% are always a 1%, even if all the information and how to is available and free, whereas it used to not be. Right. Because while all the information is free and available, what are the 99% doing? They're just watching cat videos and playing games and going on social media and having fruitless debates. Whereas the 1% are going to the source of how do I do this thing? They're taking information, then they're taking action, and then they're getting results. And so that's why like a lot of 2020 like cancel culture, SGW nonsense, uh, even the race stuff drives me nuts because it actually disenfranchises people more because it makes them not take responsibility for their life. So Extreme Ownership, Jocko Willock, good book. Everyone should read. We need that more than ever, right? And if you start, if you start, I hate, I mean, we could talk about this for a long time, but I just got to say it, man. If we start, if we keep telling young, let's say black kids or Spanish kids or Indian kids that the world is out to get them and the world is racist and that they're going to have to fight all these things based on the race, right? It's different. If you tell them they're going to have to fight things because that's the way the world is, I think that's a, I think that's a good message because that's true. Because mm-hmm. I've dealt with some shit that people have no idea. Yep. And my skin color did not help me at all. But if we start teaching people that the world is out to get them, it will become a self-fulfilling freaking prophecy. Yep. And this is why so much of the, the like identity politics crap that tries to correct problems of the world and human nature through policy or screaming usually backfire and make it worse. Oh, drives me crazy. You talked on it earlier with self-reliance and that's something that we all have within our power and that's what's going to change your life for real. It doesn't matter who gets elected. Like if you think they're going to save your life, you're probably mistaken. Nobody's going to do it for you. No one's one's saving you. Self-reliance will save you. Uh, Yeah. 
Man, so Colin, I appreciate the time. Colin Deck Coach and everyone to recommend the newsletter. You know, I love it. It's been getting more controversial. I'm trying to see like how many replies I can get now because like I got a few negative replies. I wrote something that I didn't think was controversial. And then like I got all these emails and then like I write something that's like where I think is controversial and like nobody replies. I don't know. It's always weird. It's always weird to hear feedback from the market. You know, it's kind of, yeah. it's, it's fun, but. Uh, Man, yeah. I remember one of years earlier this year I, and it was because I had sent out a newsletter and got some backlash on something I didn't even think was like political at all. Right. And yep. then your, your newsletter that week was directly political. I was like, man, I can't imagine. It was, it was, it was mass. It was my outrage at masks <laughs> and social distancing. I went just hardcore. I had a lot of unsubscribes on that one. Um, but you know, like uh, you gotta, you gotta do that. And like, we need a, a, a culture of people that critically think, but more, more than that, we need the masses to be able to hear opinions that they don't agree with. I, that's what that's I, like the solve that, that fixes everything. Literally. And people need to be able to hear opinions that they don't agree with. Because I think, well, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Because we live in the social media algorithm where, you know, Facebook will feed you what you want to hear. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, look, all this information's out there, but people got to be willing to hear it. Yep. 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 All right, Colin. Appreciate the time. Yep. Uh, I'll get this up soon. And Colin.coach and the newsletter and social media and wild foods. Keep the radio going. Dr. Kevin Stock has more coming your way. For exclusive content, visit www.kevinstock.io.